So today I'm speaking to Jonathan McMullen, who's had a very, very interesting career. Would you like to tell us a bit more about who you are and what your background is? Certainly. Good morning, Fiona. As I said, my name is Jonathan McMullen. I'm a military officer. I work for the Royal Australian Air Force. I'm currently working in the US with a company called General Atomics uh, because the Royal Australian Air Force has uh, has committed to purchasing an aircraft that's in development here. So I have the very fortunate position to be living in San Diego with my family as my current posting. But as you alluded to, I've had a reasonably interesting career that I hope we can go into today. Um, John, as I know you, you're actually a personal friend. And I met you uh, when you were doing your, you were doing a master's in the UK, weren't you? Oh, I was just doing a master's at King's College as part of what they call Joint Services Command and Staff College. So on secondment from the Royal Australian Air Force over to be with the RAF for a year to do my master's. So again, just very, very privileged to have that have had that opportunity. Yeah, but I think there's a reason that you're getting chosen for these things as well. It's not just privilege. I think it's because you're very good. But in terms of your background, so you've had, do you call it a tour of duty? Yes. Yeah. So you've had more than one tour of duty, is that right? Yeah. So I had, I've had four tours in Iraq and three in Afghanistan. So I had seven total now, uh, primarily from the 2000 and I guess between 2003 and 2015, I found myself continually either at war or preparing to be go back to war. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty dramatic position to be in, isn't it? Because there were not necessarily that many wars on the planet in our lifetime. And the ones that there were, you were in the middle of. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, we'll touch on it today. But that, you know, greatly, it greatly changed me. I wish, I don't wish, that's not the right way to say it. Um, I'm a different person now than I was in 2003. And a big part of me wishes that I'd never had that experience at war because it did fundamentally did fundamentally change me and I'm not the person that I was prior to that. But I have the, the flip side of that, I guess, as a military officer is I joined the military willingly, uh, knowing that it may be an eventuality. But I joined the military in 1991 when it was a peacetime Air Force. Uh, the Royal Australian Air Force hadn't been in conflict since the end of uh, Vietnam, really, and I joined a very large peacetime organisation without fully understanding that war, you know, war was on the horizon. That stage was still a decade away. I did join the day Gulf War One started, so the 15th of January 1991, the day Gulf War One broke out. But that didn't affect Australia um, as much as it did uh, the UK, US and the Coalition. So it was never on my radar Sorry, where I was going with that was I've had the unique and humbling privilege of leading men and women at war, and that I would never, ever change. There is, there is no higher honour for a military person than to lead women and men at war, and I've had that honour three times. And as much as I said if I could go back to 2003 and be the person I was before then, um, I would never have had the opportunity to lead at war and the experiences that brings. And whilst I acknowledge that that's changed me, 
it's also brought out a depth of resilience in me that I never ever knew I had or thought I would have had. And and I've met you obviously post that, and um, you know that we're as a family we're very fond of you. So obviously I'm biased, but um, I don't think I am because you know I see what other people say on social media and what have you, and you, you're a very liked person, and you are very humble. But I think what's particularly interesting, I guess, from a personal perspective, is that my dad was in the RF. My father-in-law was in the RAF. I grew up wanting to be in the RAF. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. They didn't take female fighter pilots. But there were two things that my mum said to me. One was, uh, you don't like following rules, so it's not going to work for you. (laughs) (laughs) And the other was, you might go to war. And I thought, in my head, I guess I'd always seen it as, yes, the army maybe, the Marines maybe, but for some reason, the Air Force, no, you don't go to war, not really. And so, I mean, obviously you, you had it up front and you, you made the decision to join, which I never did. Um, and, and who knows if anyone would ever accept, accept me anyway. But it's still, I imagine, when you don't see it on the horizon, like you say, it's, it's not what you've gone in expecting, weirdly, even though you are joining a military organisation. Agreed. So I, like everyone of our generation, I'm a little bit older than, uh, than you and your family, but I know it's, I, I'm confident for a lot of your audiences will be the same. I distinctly remember 9-11. It was like three o'clock in the morning and for some reason I was up watching TV and it was three o'clock in Australia, I think roughly 3am when the second aircraft hit the towers and people realised that it was not an accident. And as a military organisation, sorry, as a member of the military, I knew that day changed the world for us and that we were going into a long protected conflict. Um, terrorism was likely to be the new norm. And I know a lot of your listeners will know exactly where they were, date, time, hour, that they heard about the Twin Towers. Mm. It is really interesting because it's so true. Everyone does. Everyone can tell you where they were and... Yeah. So something I, was, I wanted to talk with you about, because I, I love leadership. In my introduction, I probably should have gone through a bit of a bio of my career, but I joined the Air Force as a, uh, as a naive 18-year-old. I was, uh, was not running away from home. Um, I was at university. I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I'd just been articled to a firm on the Gold Coast, which is one of the most prestigious firms on the Gold Coast, and so my kind of career as a lawyer, was was often running, I guess, and I was going to be the first person in my family to ever go to university, like in the history of my family, and got through the first year. Some, some, My parents were going through a legal battle at the time. I saw a side of the law through the firm that I was articled to that I just really didn't like, and I had a uh, I remember going into the senior partner who was a girl at my school's father, which is how I got the into this firm, this quite prestigious firm. And the takeaway line from that was, he went, Jonathan, that's the law. If you don't like it, get out. And I was 19, arguably immature, actually not even arguably immature, and I walked out of his office and applied to the Air Force. My brother, yeah, 100%. my, My brother was in the Air Force 
And, you know, massive decision to walk away from being article to this firm, studying at a good university and having my career, you know, where I thought I wanted to be since I was about eight years old. And I walked out and his his comment was so profound or I found it so profound um, that, yeah, it changed my life on that day. I guess it's his comment combined with your value set was somehow being violated for what was your parents were going through. And so those two things combined, are in, you know, I often see, I mean, I don't know, do you, did, was it because it was going against your values and your beliefs, what was happening to your parents? I don't want you to tell me what was happening to your parents. No, no, you, it, very adept, 100%. It, uh, I saw a side of the law where it was literally about money, it was not about the person. And the reason I said immaturely was, Looking back, there are so many different branches of the law where I could have gone and done good for people. But I was in a firm that I dreamed about for such a long time and I realised that their raison d'etre, the only thing that got them out of bed was making money off other people. And often people that were not necessarily destitute, but they could quite easily be made destitute by this firm. And my family's in that situation. And, yeah, I walked out of the office that day and went, that's not for me. And that's the immature bit where I realise now if I stuck with it, there's many different aspects of law where that's not the case. It's difficult to see as a 19-year-old boy. Well, our brain is still developing until we're 26. And so actually, yeah, it's massive to make any decisions about careers before then, regardless. Uh, and if, if there's something that is so against who you are as a person, then you can totally see how you made that immediate decision to do something different. Yeah, so I, so my brother had been in the Air Force and I saw the camaraderie, the mateship, and again, this is the peacetime Air Force, and just the large amount of fun they're having. And I went, you know what? I think I want that in my life. And so uh, I applied to be a pilot. I'd done very little research. As I said, as a spur of the moment thing. I hadn't done any prep and didn't uh, was not successful in the testing. So they offered me another job that was called Airborne Electronics Analyst. So basically not an officer, not flying, but uh, on the aircraft, sitting down the back doing the process, like operating the radar, the acoustic sensors. The aircraft was called a a P3C Orion. So it was a maritime patrol aircraft. And they said, listen, you can't be a pilot, but you can do this. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like fun. And the job, the glossy brochure said you spend a lot of time flying around the world and you're on exercises and you're having a great amount of fun. And I did it, and you know what? I had an amazing amount of fun. But after about six or seven years, I was becoming quite disenfranchised. I was, you know, I was climbing through the ranks. I was successfully reported. I had a great job. It was everything they said it would be. But I found myself becoming more and more disenfranchised, and I didn't realise why. But that disenfranchisement also drove a poor attitude in me. And I was not being the best human, I think, and the best, the best Air Force member that I could be. And I remember one day a guy who I greatly respected, he's now Qantas, he's now Qantas captain, but he was a senior pilot in the squadron. I had a real affinity to him and I really admired him. And he pulled me aside and he said, hey, Jonathan, you're being a, you know, you're being a dick. His language is a bit stronger than that, but the words <laughs> to the effect that I was, I was being a bit of a clown. Um, and we talked about it for a couple of hours and he was right. And I knew my attitude was poor, but I couldn't work out why. 
and I sat with him for a few hours and he was a, he was a mentor to me and he basically came down to the fact that I came to the self-realisation that I was frustrated with the leadership in Air Force in the particular little microcosm that I operated in, I was frustrated. There was no leadership. And that was affecting my attitude and making me a poor team player. So he said to me, all right, Jonathan, you have three choices here, mate. He said, you can shut up and do your job because you're paid well and you're good at your job. And just, you know, status quo, just shut up, do your job. He said, oh, you can get out. You passed your return of service obligation. You're free to leave the Air Force. So tomorrow you can go home, go and be a lawyer, go and do whatever you want. Or he said, you can change. He said, you can commission as an officer and take all all this evidence you have of what you believe poor leadership to be, what people really want in a leader, and go and be an officer and make a difference. And I went away and I sulked for about two weeks because I just kind of had a scolding from someone that I truly respected. I woke up one day and went, you know what? I'm going to commission as an officer, work my way through the leadership roles and try and make a difference. And so that's where the journey started in kind of 1999, 2000, to take me to where I am today. That's really interesting because it's that... um from a personal perspective, I remember when I was in management consultancy and it was starting to really, really be the wrong fit for me. And and there is that sort of rebellion sometimes, isn't there, when there is that level of frustration. And it's also you're just not performing at your best. But how insightful of him to actually be able to put his finger on what it was and to be able to offer you that advice. It is, and we, it's so, sorry, it's not, it's becoming more commonplace now and we're, you know, and we're putting a, putting a nice little boundary rounding and calling it coaching or whether it's coaching or bleeds into mentoring, etc. But back in the day, we didn't do that. But I found with, as my experience coming through as an officer and then as a, you know, reaching command, and I'll go through a little bit more of that later on. When I see those people like me, I have a great deal of empathy for them and I understand that the root cause of the problem, you know, is not necessarily their behaviour, but it's what's causing that behaviour. And that, you know, I, I learned that lesson the hard way um, through, you know, through this guy who, who took the time to work through it with me. But in my entire career, when I see people acting out or I see people behaving poorly, I've often been able to find that the underlying issue and help them with it which is, it taught me a great deal. It's amazing. And it's also, <laughs> obviously it fits with my next book mm-hmm. that we all have that need for someone to just give us a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of guidance. And and I guess it's fantastic that you're doing that within the Air Force. But I look outside in broader society and you can see how kids get disenfranchised and join gangs and all that sort of stuff. And how powerful it can be if they do have a mentor. In fact, actually, there's I found some evidence that shows empathy shown towards someone mitigates the impact of joining a gang. So if someone is in a community where there's a high proportion of gang membership, if they have someone in their family or someone outside their family that shows them a great deal of empathy, 
it prevents them just simply through the empathy itself it prevents them from joining gangs fascinating is there a correlation between whether they're inside the family or out do people outside the family have greater greater influence and sway because they are not directly related to you they're a trusted advisor trusted mentor it really depends on the individual but it's the, the, the three factors that it tends to come down to are trust, um, connection, and exposure. And exposure sounds a bit dodgy, but exposure being how, how often you see that person. So, so, I mean, it's going off track a bit, but, you know, uncles and aunts can be very bad influences on kids. If they themselves are, you know, they're, they're violent, negative behaviour, it can have quite a strong influence on children, more so than other people within the community Uh, anyway the thing is you're playing that role and you're helping pull these younger people people who are early on in their career potentially I guess people who are your peers as well sometimes out but so it's interesting as well because you say 1999 and it wasn't that long I mean it's 2003 you said you was tour of duty Um, And so it wasn't really that long to become an officer and then be thrown in the deep end, as it were. No, so that that in itself was was a really interesting time in my life. There's a before I so as I said, I applied to be a pilot before I joined. So and I'd been ceremoniously told uh, no, but without any real fidelity around the no. So in the late 90s, I'd introduced something called Freedom of Information in Australia where you could apply to have your records um, and from psych records through to testing records and everything that uh, the system held on me when I went in for that first testing in, I guess, 1990. So I applied to the Freedom of Information and when I received my little dossier back, it had stamped on the front, and this is, this is a true story, I still have a copy of it somewhere, Along the lines of this individual is too stupid to be an officer, encourage them to never apply again. And I was a uni student, so I clearly no. wasn't stupid. No. But this is this is what someone had, had written across the front of my file. So that was to me, again, a requisite period of probably one week of sulking that the you know someone had written that I was too stupid to be an officer, uh, and encourage them, encouraged individual to never apply again was written on it. Um, it is so that was like red rag to bull to me so I and I committed to the fact that I wanted to commission I wanted to be a leader and I wanted to change the organization because I had some some values that I thought would make a that what I thought would make a good leader I thought I had that and I wanted to be able to demonstrate that that my thinking to myself was correct about what what people want so I applied. I was unsuccessful for commissioning as a pilot, but I was successful commissioning as a navigator. So I accepted my commission, went to officer's training school, knowing that they held my file and on the front of my file it said, you know, member is too stupid That's uh, to be an officer, encourage him to never apply again. So I'm at officer's training school and I know they have my dossier and I know they've read all this. So I felt a certain amount of perceived pressure. I don't know that it was real, but a lot of perceived pressure on myself. And at the time, officers' training school was about 19 weeks. And when I finished officers' training school, I I spent my time there 
they, they, are, they are growing junior leaders for the Air Force. So they put you through a whole bunch of leadership training and leadership challenges to try and to see how you lead. And I stuck to my core beliefs about what I thought made a great leader during that 19 weeks, even though it was not necessarily what they were teaching. And at the end of officer's training school, I was, uh, I was fortunate and privileged enough to graduate as the ducks of that class. So here's this guy who is too stupid to be an officer and now ducks their officer training school. And then the next year... They so, sorry, Donna, that, that is, means, did, does that mean you came out top, you aced it? Yeah, that meant I graduated top of my class. Wow. Um, but the next year, they basically put all the Duxes from the year before and all the junior officer cohort together and they select someone who was the junior, best junior officer in Air Force for that year and they present them with a sword. So the next year I win junior officer of the year and I've got a sword. So now I'm walking around with this big sword trying not to cut my head off. And I'm the guy, I'm the guy who's too stupid or too dumb to be an officer. So now I've ducks their course and I'm also their junior officer of the year. Because I because I, I love leadership and and I well, it, you know it, at the time it's loving it. It's being good at it, but there's also and committing to it and and like you said, red rag to the book. It's like you Sam, I can't do this, I'll show you I can do this. Um, but do you know who wrote that? A psychologist. Oh, no, that's appalling. <laughs> that is absolutely yeah, but, appalling. Yeah, but this, you know, this is 1990. Um, but, yeah, and they never expected it to be read by me because during, the, you know, back in 1990, there was no Freedom of Information Act. You had no, no one had access to what people wrote about you. That came, that came right. later. That as a psychologist, I said that is not something you should be writing about anyone, regardless of whether they see it or not. I, I don't disagree with you, Fiona, but um, you know it's what it was. And then I went from officer training school over to to do my nav course, and that was sort of fourteen months of flying, or theory and flying. And I ducked or graduated top of my navigators course, and I had the uh, the highest score recorded um, oh, no. in recent history. So now I've got. Ducks my officer's training school, have the leadership sword, and I've just recorded the highest score at the School of Air Navigation that they've seen, and I'm the guy who's too stupid to be an officer. So, well, I mean, what a um, great story for anyone, though, for any, for especially for, for kids, if they're told they they you know they can't do something or they're not good enough. Um, and yeah. I, I tell the story a little bit, Fiona, for that very very reason because. And I instill in my children now that no one can ever tell you what you can and can't do. Um, it, and it, you know, it greatly affected me at the time when I read it. But I, you know, my then desire was to prove them wrong, um, which I did. And ironically, so officers training school, I graduated in 2001 and I went back to command it in 2016. So after I'd finished my tours of war, and I'd finished my command of a squadron that was kind of at war at the time. Um, well, when I left you guys, when I left England, I went back to command officers training school, so which is kind of the pinnacle job in that officer training school evolution to go from student to the commanding officer of the school. That's quite top gun, isn't it, as well? Uh, that bit, probably not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but no, for me to go back... And I never, I never wanted to command the school because when I went through 
I didn't have a great deal of respect for it. Whilst I did well, um, I didn't have a great deal of respect for it. And I was in London studying at the time when I got a call from someone who had been a mentor of mine. It, comes, it always comes back to this mentor piece, doesn't it? Who had been a mentor of mine who was now a very, very senior officer. And he was arguably in the top kind of two senior officers in the Air Force. And they'd asked me if I wanted to go and command officers training school. And I said, no, I don't want to. I just met Jenny, who was a British lady, um, who's a friend of yours. And we were going back to Canberra. There was a job, a really good job for Jenny in Canberra. And officers training school was in this little town called Sale, population 8,000 people, three hours from anywhere um, in Victoria. And Jenny was working at uh, Tower Bridge in London amongst, you know, tens of millions of people um, and taking her from there to a place called Star with 8,000 people, combined with the fact that I didn't respect the institution at the time, made that a you know an unpalatable job for me. And I get a call from this guy and he said, Jonathan, I want you to go and command officers training school. And he said, I've got an email here saying that you don't want to do it. Why don't you want to do it? And I said, sir, I don't want to do it because... You know, I have no faith in the institution. Um, we've never sent our best people there, in my opinion only. We've never sent our best people there. Uh, it was a lot of people that had gone and done that job hadn't gone any further in their career, so it's kind of a career-ending job. And it historically was not for aircrew, and I was aircrew. And he went, that's exactly why I want you to go. He said, I don't disagree with anything you've said. He said, I want to change the institution. And he said, we've got a great CEO there at the moment. And he said, I want to follow it up with someone who I would classify as a warfighter. You got seven tours in the Gulf and I've been on one tour with this particular guy. He said, you got seven tours at war. You got a chest full of medals. You've had PTSD. You've come back. You've commissioned from the ranks. You espouse leadership. Everything about you is leadership. Most of your awards are for leadership. So, I want to send a message that this is the caliber of people that we send officers training school. And he said, it starts with you. And it was a valid argument. I couldn't, you know, I, he was 100% correct. So that's how I ended up as a CEO of officers training school, despite the fact that I didn't want to. I didn't know that. What's interesting though, again, is what he was saying resonated with your values because it comes back to all the way back to the beginning where when you were feeling disenfranchised before you went to the officers' training school, it was because you were disenfranchised and frustrated with leadership. And so for someone to be saying, and, and all the way through, you were looking to change that by being a good leader. And so he he knew that that resonated with actually what you wanted as well. Yeah, so he's he's still in the Air Force and, uh, you know, no, you may hear this podcast, but he's He's just one of the most inspirational people I've ever met, but he knew my core values and he could easily he could easily manipulate the wrong word, but he could easily pluck at my core values to make to you know to make it resonate. And it did. And those two years at officers training school were nothing can ever, nothing can ever be more humbling or honorable than leading women and men at war. But to be at the school, and to see the, the depth and the calibre of current Air Force recruiting and then to have such an influential influential 
uh, impact or influential experience with these young women and men was just simply phenomenal. I, it's this, it's probably the, the most singularly rewarding experience I've had. The, the wartime leadership was tinged with, uh, with a lot of sadness and, uh, and hardship, but for, for pure, for pure, um, uh, I don't know how to say it. I know some of the the experiences you had, not not all of, because there there were a lot uh, when you were doing your tours. But it's that reward of being able to teach and share and impart your own knowledge and your understanding, but also impart. You've had a really really tough time, and you're very open about that. And I imagine that's something that you were very open with the students about too, which gives them a viewpoint that is absolutely unique. They can't get that information from anywhere else and they're hearing it from you and they will see you as inspirational. But I imagine it gives purpose to, it sounds a bit dramatic maybe, but purpose to your suffering because you're, you're, yes, you, you suffered from PTSD and, but you are able to share what that's like, how that happens, all those things that then equip those youngsters with a level of knowledge that they wouldn't otherwise have. It's uh, that is it's extremely insightful for me. So I went there and I tell the story to the students. So on day one, I'd get up and introduce myself and I'd explain to them the nature of their role, the nature of war, the fact that that they should expect, like this is from day one, and this, I took a little bit of, uh, I changed the way officers training school did business to a certain extent, and I believe that was my mandate, and I believe that's why I was chosen. So the the, the CEO prior to me um, was a great man, and I have utmost respect for him, but we did things differently. Um, and his his methods had merit, and I, you know, and I hope mine had merit as well. But we were quite different in our approach. I would stand on day one, and I would explain the ramifications of war, making life and death decisions, and what I expected of these people, and what they should expect during their career. So there was no kind of hand holding. This is all going to be okay. It was we are at war today. We will be at war likely for the majority, or war or conflict. For the majority of your time as an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, you will lead women and men at war. Some of you will make life and death decisions that you have to live with and your family has to live with. And I said, that is what you're signing up for. And if you're not prepared for this, now's the time to have a think about it. Um, and it's really, really quite in your face on day one when you're expecting it to be a little bit nicer, I guess. Um, or a little bit more, hey, you've joined the best organisation in the world, you're going to have the most amazing time. I was all very much, and again, shaped by my experience, but I believe they needed to hear that on yeah. day one. And, and from a psychological perspective, from my knowledge of, of psychology, that, that is what people need. And at the moment when we have this crisis, it's if you have information, provide honest information and provide that information in a way that doesn't build it up or knock it down, but it's honest and straight. 
If you don't have that information, say you don't have that information. But that is the best way to enable people to cope with difficulty crisis and to equip people to manage in challenging situations. So in my view, I would say that's absolutely the right way of doing it. And I made a pledge to them as well to keep myself accountable as much as anything. At the end of my, and so it was interesting, so I rolled into officers training school and I have, a, I have a team of about 70 or 80 people that work with me to make this place an amazing institution. And I remember day one, first time a course rocked up, I've been CO for two weeks. And the, XO, the XO or the, the second in charge of, the, of their squadron comes in and goes, hey, sir, opening addresses this morning to the new students. Um, basically, you open at 8 a.m., you've got five minutes, uh, and then it goes through the whole thing. And I said, no, I'm not going to open with five minutes. This is the first time they ever see the commanding officer of this unit. They're going to see me for, I don't know, an hour. And she goes, oh, that's not how we do it. We don't have time in the schedule. And I said, listen, <laughs> when I went through OTS, and I tell the students this story about week three for them, when I went through OTS, I'm sure the commanding officer came in on day one and said, hello, uh, you're all bloody amazing, have a good future. And I'm sure he or she, and it's a he because it was a bad old days in the, in the early 2000s when men ruled the world. Um, and I'm sure he came in on day 140 and said, you've all done very well, congratulations. But I have no idea to this day what that man's name is, what his job is, what he did. And my pledge was that every student who graduates during my time as a commanding officer will know me as a human being, they'll know my family, they'll understand my core value set, and they'll understand what gets me out of bed every single day and what I expect from them as junior officers. So I spent about an hour with them on day one, much to the protestation of my team who wanted me just to say five minutes and get out of the room so they could, you know, do their magic. Good for you. I'm a, I made a promise to these students and I said to them, by the time you graduate here in four and a half months, you know, you will know all these things about me and I will be, I will set the standard for you of what I believe a commanding officer should be and if I fall short of being this person that I, you know, and I spent a bit of time explaining myself on day one, I said if I fall short, I expect you to have the moral courage of four and a half months to come and give me some positive Correction, to come and give me some honest feedback to help me improve myself because my job is to inspire you to be great leaders and if I'm not doing that, then I need to know. And during the four and a half months, I built a relationship with them. I take over, I took over probably a lecture a fortnight. Previous CEOs didn't lecture students. They did the introduction on day one. They did the close on the last day and I think they might have spent a couple of hours with the students towards the end of course. I took over a leadership role on their course because I believed I was their commanding officer as well as the commanding officer of my team that delivered all the training. And if I'm in the position because I've had so much experience, I should then be imparting that with these, you know, these young men and women and older men and women actually because that's kind of that's my raison d'etre. So I built a relationship with them over four and a half months and then on the second last day of course, I'd go and sit down and they generally had no idea about my PTSD journey. And I'd have a conversation with them for about 90 minutes and I would go through my wartime journey. And they knew a lot of the stuff that I'd done at war because I turned it into lectures to, to show them the, 
you know, command at war is is different from command at home. The decision making decision making is sometimes different at war. Um, and then I'd hit them with this bombshell that I'd had PTSD, I'd been off work, I'd had heavy psychiatric counselling, I'd had a heavy course of drugs and I had all this kind of stuff. And I came back from that and I took people back to war, um, you know, two years later. And I say to them, I tell you this story because you spent four and a half months getting to know me. You know all of the, you know, you know most of my achievements and I said, but no one of my rank, no CO or commanding officer is ever going to stand in front of you and show weakness. And I said, I don't see it as weakness, and some of you will. I'd leave it to the second last day to tell them this, this story of the depth of my depression and anxiety and, and the, 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 the complete and utter low I'd reached in my life through, at the time, undiagnosed PTSD, how I was... I was not a good father to my daughters, how I had a lot of self-loathing and would just go, and, you know, I quite often wouldn't break down in tears, but you can probably hear in my voice, it makes me quite emotional because I think back to those times and I was not a good human being and I tell them about the the utter, the utter depths of despair, uh, depression and anxiety that I hit. Uh, not not wanting to leave the house, not being able to go to shopping centres, not being, never going, basically never leaving the house, stopped exercising, put on a lot of weight, was unhappy, broke social contact with everyone I knew, became a hermit. Um, and this is utterly astounding to them because it didn't, it didn't make sense compared to who I was in front of them. One thing that it's probably worth saying is you're six foot three, uh, your strong fit. Um, this this I've got this information from an article. I haven't been stalking you. 105 kilograms. Um, you were a kickboxing champion, um, and so it, and then you also have all these achievements within uh, the, the military. And they've seen that you're articulate, you're taking the lead, you're explaining these situations that you've been in and how you've managed and led. So it's a bombshell. 100%. And I'll do it on the second last day, of course, for that very reason. But at the very end, I stand up and I've been emotional through this and it takes about 90 minutes and they see how much it hurts me to relive it. And I go through pulling bodies off helicopters. I go through having a friend's legs blown off and putting my hand inside his groin trying to stop him, you know, an arterial bleed that eventually killed him. Well, not eventually, within kind of two or three minutes. And living with that without talking to someone like you and bottling it up and, and, and the self-harm, and I don't mean self-harm by cutting myself, I mean the self-harm I did by, by, mentally by not seeking help. And I say to them, why am I telling you this? And then I go into what you said. I said, I'm telling you this because before this happened, I was literally and figuratively the toughest person I thought I'd met. I've been a bouncer at some of the really, really hard nightclubs in the town I was living in. Um, yeah, I was fighting uh, professionally. I was literally, I'd done some tough men competitions. I was literally the toughest guy I knew. And that was my background. And I'm the same guy sitting on the lounge watching, you know, Flickr 2, I think the movie was, with my girls and just 
burst out crying. And this is like 2012 and I just could not stop crying. And I had my girls there, they were like seven and eight. It completely freaked them out. But I was absolutely unable to stop myself from crying and had a complete matter breakdown. And the hardest thing for me is it didn't compute with who I thought I was in my head. And that's why I tell them. And as a commanding officer and as a senior officer in the military to stand up and tell that story to every junior officer to come through the school, um, it had a lot It had a lot of power because people of my rank don't admit weakness because they see it as, they see it as weakness. I think it shows immense strength to be able to show that. And, and um, I don't know if you've come across Brené Brown who talks about vulnerability being an absolutely critical part of leadership. And, you know, sometimes I work with leaders and, and tell them they need to show more vulnerability. You couldn't really show any more vulnerability than that because it's not only the vulnerability of the mental state that you went through and sharing that, but it's the reliving it. And I personally, from my own uh mental history I really struggle sharing how I felt and what's happened because I relive it and I don't have the trauma that you do of actually dealing with death um, and decisions that were life and death and all those sorts of things so I admire you for doing it from a personal perspective and then from the perspective of my job as uh, working with leaders I think it's immensely powerful and then on top of that, my job is working more broadly with people on mental health and just understanding the brain and psychology. Again, you're breaking down barriers. You're, you're opening up the opportunity for other people to, A, get treatment when they need to, B, understand and accept that this is normal and actually the best of the best can have it and actually live with it and actually continue to achieve with it. You know, I have huge admiration for you. But it, I mean, personally, it worries me you, you keep reliving it because I don't know how good that is for you. No, but this, yeah, and, you know, I still seek, I still actively seek treatment to to try and better myself. And, you know, it robs me of, I'm, I'm asymptomatic of PTSD, uh, except for sleep. So, you know, I still, it still robs me of sleep and that's something that I've been working on for the last eight years now, I guess, uh, and will continue to work on. But, yeah, the, I did it because I know no one else will do it and I think it's super important to hear it from someone like me to try and, and, the, and I say to, the, say to them at the start, or at the finish really, I, I want to destigmatize mental health. It's, and I want to say to people that it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to have, you know, levels of anxiety. We, you know, there is, there is help out there. I think as a culture in the West, um, I can only speak really for the West, we're brought up to, we were brought up to believe that you fight it um, and, and actually that's the very worst thing to do in terms of the way our mind works. And so it's misinformation. And then you add the layer onto that of being in the military, of not showing any vulnerability, and it causes problems. You're put in 
real life danger situations that mean that you are risking your life day in day out and, and responsible for other people's lives and you try and bottle that up it's just incredibly it's incredibly dangerous negative uh, toxic and as you said you, you the self-harm it wasn't about cutting yourself type self-harm but it was about the what you were doing to your own mind by believing that you shouldn't be feeling those things it's uh, spot on because I you know I it took me a while to I had some I had some uh, hate a strong word I don't use it I had some serious dislike to the organization because I believe that I believed sorry that the air force had broken me that war had broken me and that I was never going to be the same. And I had a, I had a whole bunch of uh, issues around blaming other people and blaming war for, you know, for not being able to leave the house and not, not being a normal, you know, normal member of society. And I know that's pretty silly. Um, but I did it to myself. It took me a lot of reflection and working with someone really clever like you to realise that, that I I largely did this to myself. So it was my first command tour in Afghanistan. Um, I had been, do you know who Steve Bradbury is? Have you ever heard of Steve Bradbury? I, I recognise the name. He's, um, he's the guy, he's an Australian who won, he's an Australian who won the Olympics at ice skate sprinting because the six guys in front of him fell over or whatever. Um, and he just, he was last and he just skated through and won a gold medal. Um, you know, the accidental winner. I've always kind of described myself as the Steve Bradbury of, uh, of leaders. I've been in the right place at the right time. The right person has, has liked something about me and looked after me. So that first tour of Afghanistan. Um, I'm afraid I have to disagree there. Sorry. Um, firstly, you were top of your class and then top of the top of the class. Secondly, to have someone like and guide you requires something in you to make that connection with another person so you you can call yourself the steep bradbury but i i'm not entirely sure that's true yeah no i i agree i've I, I've, I've been very very fortunate that people have taken an interest in me but in this particular case there was um the aircraft we were flying in afghanistan the capability was not being optimized um and in the air force how we optimise things, quite rightly, is throw fighter pilots at it because fighter pilots, and I'm not a fighter pilot, clearly, I'm a navigator. Um, fighter pilots are the best of the best for a reason. We train it into them. Um, they are simply brilliant um, and I have a lot of good friends that are fighter pilots and I I understand why they are the best of the best. Anyway, so having some problems with this aircraft and they determined that to fix this, they were going to throw fighter pilots at the problem. That was a big commitment from the Air Force because we are flying a remotely piloted aircraft in Afghanistan. So they took these six fighter pilots and these guys were going to go over there and they were going to fix this problem um, through being fighter pilots and thinking at a different level to a lot of us uh, and to enhance the reputation of this capability in Afghanistan because it was really, it was really an important reputation piece that we're letting ourselves down and we couldn't afford to do it in that conflict. So uh, I put an application in to go with these guys and I was, an, I was the navigator, so I was the token navigator. 
and I was going to be the executive officer or 2IC of this detachment. And they were going to send a fighter combat instructor. So if you think of fighter pilot is, uh, is great, the fighter combat instructor is like the top gun guy. So he's, he's better than all the other fighter pilots in theory. And he was going to go as a detachment commander. So the last minute he couldn't go and the decision was made that they were going to promote me and send me as a detachment commander. So I'm a navigator now, inferior species, going away with six fighter pilots um, to fix this capability. So I felt an immense amount of pressure. And I, I trained with these guys, been training, flying with these guys for the last three or four months, so I knew them. But two of them were the same rank as me, and everyone expected one of those guys to just be the detachment commander, and I'd still be the EXO. But someone went, no, we want McMullen to be the detachment commander, and you fighter pilots will all be subordinate to him. Um, in Afghanistan, which was a massive deal. And so I went over there feeling immense pressure to, and it, I'd, I'd lived my entire life in this moment, don't get me wrong, I was the happiest person you could ever imagine because I was going to go to war and lead women and men at war. And it was just, it was amazing. But within probably a week, you go over there and you fly for, three weeks with the team that's over there at the moment. So there's a team there. You're going to do three weeks of flying with them so you understand the terrain, you understand what the mission is, you understand how to get in and out of the airspace and all the aviation kind of things. And then they leave and you're by yourself. So they leave. I'm now the commanding officer. And within two weeks, one of my guys is killed. And this is the first time Air Force has lost someone at war um, in 30 years. 40 wow. years, and I'm, the, and I'm the commanding officer who's just had one of his team killed. And this is not Army, this is Air Force. We, you know, I think at the time we'd lost 30 Australians, maybe 28, 30 Australians had been killed in this conflict by this stage. Um, and so here I am, brand new leader, promoted, you know, promoted into this position, leading these fighter pilots. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a wider team of 70 amazing human beings. It's not about the fighter pilots. The fighter pilot bit is about the perceived and real pressure I put on myself to lead because these guys academically, career-wise and everything, are superior to me. They are just the best of the best. Um, but I was chosen to lead them. And now I've just had one of our guys killed. And I have to... And it just doesn't happen on an Air Force detachment in this day and age for us because, you know, we have air superiority and it's not supposed to happen. And I now have to get these, you know, 60, 70 individuals out of bed every morning, back flying kind of combat missions whilst trying to deal with the death of this guy and to to get him home with dignity and grace and to, you know, there's... There's a whole room of stuff that happens when someone's killed in in war to get them home, you know, from picketing their body from the time that, you know, and I I carried this guy off a helicopter and he'd been involved in a helicopter accident and he'd been crushed and burnt um, in the accident. And it's literally like MASH if you guys had that in the UK, but I'm at the... I'm out in the front of the morgue. When the helicopter comes in, I go and get his body off the helicopter. I carry him into the morgue. Mm, I've then got to kind of, I've then got to debomb him so I count for all his ammunition and his weapon and get his dog tags and take his clothes off because the morgue's 
overrun with other casualties. You know, there's 31,000 people on the base. There's casualties coming in, you know, literally every five minutes a helicopter lands with dead, dying or wounded. And so I've got to get him. And then we move him in a shipping container. They lock the door, give me a set of keys and go, right, he's in there until you get him home. Uh, pick at the, it's just, you know, it's business as usual. Pick at this body, you know, so we have an armed guard picketing. What does picket mean? Picket means you stand there guarding them. You're okay. you're on you're on duty. So you're at you're you're standing outside the shipping container with your weapon, making sure that he remains safe and that we can account for him and it doesn't get mixed up with anyone else, etc. Um, but yeah, and then to go back and tell these. So I have by this time this has been playing out over six or seven hours. By this time I had my whole team out of bed, the aircraft back home, and everyone basically waiting at camp. So I rolled around to camp and, you know, so I just literally finished getting um, Marcus off the helicopter. I'd been bawling my eyes out for probably 40 or 50 minutes, which is probably unleader-like. And then I drive from there and I've got a 20-minute drive around to the camp where all my people are, where we're flying. And the whole 20 minutes drive around the camp, um, I'm bawling my eyes out going, how the hell do I tell these people? You know, I'm the leader, right? So I've got to be, I've got to be the person they can count on to get through this. You know, the buck stops with me. And so the whole way around there, I'm wondering how the hell, you know, what am I going to do? And then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, woe is me. Holy shit, why did this happen to me? And I kind of had a moment where I went, everything I've always thought about leadership, everything I've always wanted comes down to this moment. So I went around and had my team there and basically had them assembled and very clinically explained what had happened, mechanism of death, time of death, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's that point that I saw the true full spectrum of human emotions. I had one girl who literally fainted and had a fighter pilot at the other end of the spectrum and it literally it was a lineup of people. They were like at a parade. And this fighter pilot, absolutely stoic, just looked like I told him his lunch was going to be late. And it's one of his best mates. And that, that really hurt me mentally. I expected everyone to act like the young lady did. And she mm. didn't do it because she was a lady. She just did it because that's her personality. Um, I expected everyone to be shocked and like feel like I felt and be emotive, like I was emotive. And this fighter pilot was a stoic, like, uh, you know, my lunch is late. And fast forward two weeks, this lady is back to being a bright, bubbly, junior leader, really happy, just a joy to be around. And the fighter pilot doesn't show up for work. So I drive. So I get someone else to fly his mission. I drive back to accommodation knock on his door and said, hey, mate, you know, what's going on? Because fighter pilots do not never show up. It's, they just don't do it. And he said, sir, I don't know. He just said, I just can't get out of bed. And he probably spent a week or so getting some help um, to get him back flying again. Yeah. But, wow. you know, it was just... Just immensely emotional. And when... We're at our most extreme of emotion. We do expect other people to feel and react the same way as us. And I think that's why 
slightly out of context, but why um, parents will often split up if a child dies because one parent can't understand how the other parents reacted. Um, and suddenly they're not on the same page anymore because they're both feeling incredibly strong emotions, but in different ways. And so to be confronted with that when you weren't trained to understand that psychological side of stuff because you hadn't had someone do for you what you were doing for the guys that you're talking about in 2016, then it, you're, you're learning for the first time in a real life situation when you're also trying to process your own emotions. And that's really hard. Yeah, it it is. But it was such a defining time in in my life. But this is where it came. This is where I hurt myself. So I got the psychiatrist and the psychologist. And when something happens like this at war, the Australian Defence Force, like the RAF or the, the um, MOD, are well prepared to support you. They flew up all the psychologists. They flew up psychiatrists. They were there with us to help us work through our grief. But I was an idiot. I thought as the leader, I had to make sure everyone, and I, I made it a parade and I forced everyone on my team to go and speak with the psychiatrist and the psychologist, whether they wanted to or not. I made it a place of parade and they had to go because I saw the benefit of it. But as a leader, I always found myself too busy doing other stuff, too busy being the guy standing up the front saying, we're going to get through this team. You know, our raison d'etre is to roll out of bed tomorrow morning, get these aircraft flying and go and enhance and save Australian lives. That's our job. Our job is not to a job is not to sit back and mourn. Marcus, we we can we absolutely will do that. Um, but we must get out of bed tomorrow. We must get back in the fight. And I was always a guy at the front because everyone was looking at me to see how I would react. And I never took care of myself. And that's the greatest single lesson that I learned and that I tried to pass on to the students is that, yeah, is that I did it to myself. No one did it to me. Yeah, I but Donna, had any, anyone ever taught you that? Had anyone ever taught you that as the leader you need to look after yourself? No, Stephen Covey's number seven, right? Sharpen the saw. Um, no, and naively I just thought I had to be the guy who was just who is just going to get I, everyone I, through this. And I, I, don't I, just think completely... I don't I don't think it's naive at all because as someone that works with leaders, I would say it's something that all the leaders I work with have to learn and they've learned at some point, but the leaders that I work with are not in the military. And so they will learn it in much more gentle ways than the way you learned it. And it's something that, leaders should be made aware of that yes you are the person out the front but yes you also need to look after yourself and that's what you're teaching the next generation coming through but it wasn't taught to you and if you're not taught that you don't know it it's as simple as that it's not something that you should or could know it's something that you have to be told yeah, extremely valid. And I once I realised that I, and I don't like the word broken, but I use it, you know, I'd, I'd kind of broken myself. I'd, I'd taken myself to a point of a mental breakdown because I never sought help because I thought I was too tough. 
I didn't need it. And that is the resounding message that I try and smash into everyone now. And the articles that you alluded to, the reason I wrote those is I had the realisation that I hurt myself, that I had every resource available to me if I was willing to admit I needed help, but I was too tough. I couldn't, I couldn't resolve who I thought I was with who I actually was. I mean, that's the tough man society's view of, of so, so that's what we're brought up with to an extent. And you think, I, I'm a girl, I'm not in the uh, forces, and yet I spent my teenage years uh, battling depression, and, and I was battling it. I was fighting it. It wasn't going to get me. But actually fighting it is the worst thing you can do. And unless someone tells you that, you don't know. Yeah, I, you're right. I learned, I learned the hard way. Um, but I went, but so that's, so the crux of it for you, and you and I have spoken about this personally on different occasions, and that's why I gave you the links or alluded to some of the articles that have been written about me or I've written, is, is there should be no stigma around it. Um, you're allowed to have a bad day. Uh, you're allowed to have many bad days, but you need, you need to, get professional help um, and not just deny it and be an alpha male and be an idiot like I was going, can't happen to me, I've read about it, but that's not me, that's not what's happening to me until I'm a, you know, until I'm a laying in the lounge crying uncontrollably. Um, but, you know, I had every opportunity and every resource, the, the Australian Defence Force offered me every resource to prevent that happening. The alpha male, stubborn, it can't happen to someone like me, it happened to me. And that's why, you know, that's kind of the, that's where I end my message with the students or with anyone. I now speak to a whole bunch, I speak to a whole bunch of people um, about this now, ex-service people, um, any of the wounded warrior kind of organisations that want guest speakers. I do a lot of this because if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. I, I mean, I think it's so valuable, so valuable. And I don't think it's just... Uh, military that it's valuable to or ex-military it's valuable to the entire population everyone needs to hear this everyone needs to understand these things and and you know society's moving towards a place where more everyday levels of mental anguish are being understood and accepted but the real issues the underlying sort of messages I don't know I think we still have so much work to do on them and I think it's just invaluable being able to share this but again I, offline I worry about you know I worry about you repeating this over and over again and um, your bruises help other people not bump into the same things um and hopefully your bruises will fade with time, um, but they will take time to heal properly. And that's why sleep is, you know, sleep is sort of so deep within our psyche that that's the last thing to heal. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I haven't, um, no one's explained it to me that way before. Um, so thank you. Yeah, that's the that's the last kind of frontier for me. And when I can when I can solve that, I know that uh, that things will be things will be much better. 
And the other the other thing I learned through this journey, Fee, is that there, there is no magic, you know, there's no silver bullet, there's no magic pill. Um, and that's something that we should we should always keep at the forefront of our mind. It's a journey. There's, you know, I did some time in a repatriation hospital to try and help balance my balance the the drugs I was taking, like the prescription drugs, prescription medication I was taking, along with my sleep. And in there, I came across a whole bunch of people that were looking for a magic bullet. They were looking for this one pill that was going to make everything okay. It's not there. It is a massive well, I, amount of. There's a massive amount of work that has to be done, and, and I don't. Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, this. I you think just said this, what I was going to say anyway. Well, this is such an issue in that within my field, there'll be people saying um, people want the magic bullet. So, so there's one woman I met who called herself a psychologist. Who, when I looked up afterwards, wasn't actually. She had a psychology degree, which doesn't make you a psychologist. Um, and she was telling people that she could cure anxiety in three easy steps. And of course, people want to hear that because they want to think, oh, yeah, it's a bit like someone saying, if you take this pill, you'll lose weight. Um, but, but in the same way as losing weight takes uh, you know, a lot of work if you're overweight in terms of diet, exercise, healthy lifestyle, sleeping properly. The same is true with any mental uh, not even issue, but any mental well-being, it requires work. But people want to hear that it's, there's a quick fix and, and they want to take the quick fix partly because when you're suffering mentally, you're in pain, you're in a lot of pain. Um, and it's it's pain that no one else can see or understand. And so it's a very lonely feeling, um, which just makes it even more uh, excruciating but what I find frustrating in my field is that there are the people who offer the book that will cure you, the book that says this, the pill that will do that, the therapy that will do this, the course that will do that. And none of them will. And the message really should be, we can all be okay. We can all live a good life, but it takes work. That's, uh, that's so adept and articulate it's exactly what oh I guess I was getting at and you know that's your that's your field of what's part of your field of expertise Um, you you, you said it exactly but I'm just saying it from from the from where I'm at from sort of the other angle I just find it frustrating I find it upsetting in fact it makes me really cross sometimes yeah it's it is that again I guess that was one of the greater lessons Greater lessons, yeah, that I learned and that and that I, I speak to people about, and something about PTSD. And I don't know how it goes across other types of mental illness, but PTSD. And it was explained to me, and I don't. I'm not stating that this is correct. It was just one psychiatrist's opinion, but he was at the he was at the Repat Center working with me, and he said, Jonathan, something that you need to understand is you've got PTSD for life. You'll just be asymptomatic. Um, he said, but you will have sleep issues. And he said, I hope we can get through those. And, you know, three years we didn't um, with this one particular psychiatrist. He said, but you've got PTSD for life. You just need to accept that. He said, but you'll be asymptomatic. He said, but you will always need to work on your mental health. He said, it's now like, and whether you've got PTSD or not, you need to continually work on your mindfulness, your mental health and understand that 
my resilience has naturally been lowered a little bit because of you know because of the PTSD journey and things that things that don't affect some people will affect me more so um, and I find that so true find little things that don't worry Jenny or don't upset Jenny um, really upset me and it's just my resilience is a little bit lower uh, because of my journey. Well, I mean, from a, from a brain chemistry perspective, and I may have this incorrect, so because I'm not referring to anything, but I think what happens is your your amygdala is in a more heightened state, and you probably know more about this from from actually uh, reading up on PTSD, which means that it, it, it's, it's a bit like saying <laughs> you've got a glass full of water and the person next to you, their glass is empty and your glass is nearly full and someone pours in the same amount of water into both in one glass, they're still got, you know, a little bit in the bottom of their glass, but in your glass, it overflows. And it's a good but, analogy. But I think the other thing is, you know, and uh, that it's the fighting thing is really hard because we are brought up to believe, we're brought up to believe quite rightly that we solve problems in the world. And the more you're a problem solver, which comes into leadership partly, the more difficult it is to accept that you cannot solve your own head. That the more you try to solve whatever's going on in your head, the worse it gets. It's like um, it's like quicksand. And and if you're not told that, it's really hard. When you are told that, it feels horrible because to be told that you have PTSD for the rest of your life, or to be told that you know, we all have a level of anxiety that we have to live with because that's the way our brain has evolved. That's not a very nice message. It's kind of like, I don't like that. But if you can get to a place where you accept it, it makes life an awful lot easier. Yeah, the acceptance piece for me was the most difficult bit. And you're really right. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it in that context, but when, when, you know, this gent sat down and explained this to me. It, uh, I, I was affronted because whilst I didn't believe in magic bullets and magic pills because I've been going through the journey a while, I thought I thought it would be different. But now I realise after speaking to quite a lot of people that, you know, I just need to continually work on myself and I need external help to do that. Um, but I guess back to the original point, the amount of people that I was in hospital with that just sort of hanging out for that magic bullet and that's really harmful. Sorry, it was not helping them. No, unfortunately it won't. And um, it's, it's, it's sad um, because, yeah, it's just the pain that they will experience is going to be even worse because of that. And, I mean, there's one book, there's, there's a book called The Myth of Sanity, and it's written by a psychiatrist, and she says that basically everyone's insane. So everyone has a <laughs> level of insanity. The thing is, it's only people that tip over the edge for some reason, for some event, for some chemical imbalance, who get the help. And they end up being some of the best off in the long run, whereas everyone else just sort of trundles along with a, a dull hum in the background the whole time and they never because they've never been tipped over the edge they never actually seek that help and so 
and 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 you know leaders in business when i'm working with leaders in business i'm working with them as a coach an executive coach but we explore all sorts of things i think the irony i always find is that these people in the same sort of situation as you are these people who are incredibly successful who are looked up to who are expected to have it their shit together everyone's the same every no one has their shit together but when you're able to see that and use someone else to help you gain a perspective on it and to understand it better you put yourself in a much stronger position couldn't i couldn't agree more the one of the most satisfying things in my previous role as commanding officer of officers training school um and Jenny will attest to this, is the amount of emails I still receive from people who say, hey, sir, you, your honesty and your honesty and your authenticity and your humility have allowed me to recognise that I have some issues I need to deal with or the fact that it's okay to not be okay or I've recognised in my brother or my sister or my mum and dad that they have a problem and I'm helping them now get you know get the right sort of treatment so it's speaking out and being that guy and going on record as that person has been has been personally extremely rewarding for me and that that in itself helps me every day it's it's an immense thing you're doing you're you're giving giving back in a way that is just immeasurable in terms of the quality of life you're offering to other people. Um, John, there's so much I want to talk about. I'm wondering if we can make this part one of a podcast and then we record a part two and maybe even a part three. I'd really enjoy that. I'd love to, there's so many things I'd like to explore with you because I love your perspective and aspect, but I'd love to talk, like just do one, maybe where we talk about pure leadership and one where I'll take you through like a full tour at war, what that was like. That would be absolutely cool. Um, so, so let's, let's sort of so do, do the sort of wrap up for this one and just say, I just, in to actually repeat what your, um, your emails have said to you, Thank you for your authenticity. Thank you for your humility. Thank you for your honesty. And thank you for your friendship. Thank you for sharing your story again. Thank you for putting yourself in a position where you've made yourself vulnerable again. And yeah, thank you, Jono, for being on this today. Thank you very much for having me, Fee. I, I, I love you and your family and... You're super important to me. And if you and I can work together and you can help me uh, and and we can make some good podcasts that that help other people, then I think that's brilliant. And I'm, I'm super excited to work with you. This recording was lost for almost three months while Zoom processed my complaint amongst what must have been a mountain of other lockdown requests. I literally had sleepless nights about it. I didn't want Jono to do it again because, as you'll have heard, I don't think it's healthy to keep reliving experiences like these. But he insisted, and I think that's a massive reflection of the type of person he is. He didn't want to do it again for his benefit, but for mine and for the people listening who he's trying to help. 
thankfully the original did come through. But the next recording has some other things that we don't talk about here, which I will be putting up at some point, because they're also super interesting and I believe really, really constructive in terms of the message they give. I really hope you gained something from this. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.